How you guys doing? Doing good? Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're at. If um, you're new here, uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we have come to a section that deals with um, subject matter that in a lot of ways is difficult to really oftentimes understand. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have people that would be happy to get you guys a Bible. Just raise your hand let the ushers know. It's the subject matter of spiritual warfare. And uh, one of the reasons why this is sort of uh, maybe controversial is not the right word. It's kind of backwards type concept within our cultures because just look at the two words. Spiritual, meaning things that are immaterial. We live in a culture that's very materialistic. We live in a culture that in a lot of ways is naturalistic, meaning we believe for the most part. Uh, there's, uh, you guys are looking, maybe they're looking for more Bibles. There they are. If anybody else needs a Bible, raise your hand and they will get your Bible. Um, it, we're also a culture that's naturalistic, meaning we believe in things that are not necessarily, uh, we believe in things that are seen, but not unseen. We uh, question or are suspicious of things that are unseen, things that are quote-unquote spiritual. And the idea of warfare, spiritual warfare being the idea of that which is embroiled in a battle. Um, we are a very war-weary culture, and yet the Bible describes that what we're in and involved in is what's described as spiritual battle or spiritual warfare. So before we jump into really discussing and understanding the subject matter that we've been looking at over the past couple weeks, we took a week off last week and uh, I had a good friend of mine, Tom Stowe, speak. Uh, If you guys don't know who Tom is, uh, Tom has been a part of this church for a long time. He's a missionary right now in uh, Brazil. And so he spoke last week, so we took off last week in looking at the subject. But we're continuing our way through the book of Ephesians looking at, particularly now, the subject of, as I mentioned, spiritual warfare. And so, um, in short, I want to give a quick little background as to why the subject of spiritual warfare is significant. I think the background is significant because if we don't pause and to understand a little bit about the background, then we just simply take the isolated subject matter of spiritual warfare, and oftentimes it's out of context, and in some ways it almost feels like it doesn't fit into the larger whole of being a Christian. So in other words, the question might naturally rise, why as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, why would I be concerned about this thing called spiritual warfare? What, why is it even a big deal to you and I if we're really you know, living in a world, trying to love Jesus and figure out things as we love God and follow God and so on and so forth, and if we're going to go one day to heaven or if God is doing a work in our lives, why should we worry about the subject of spiritual warfare? So in short, what I want to do as we jump in, before we jump in, give a little bit of a background and to kind of set the stage a little bit, um, all things that we observe in this world had a beginning. And the Bible describes that that beginning was with God. God created all things. In fact, we sang that song uh, earlier, kind of the last song that we sang, Holy Spirit, come fill us. And what what I love about that song is really when we're praying uh, for God's Holy Spirit to come fill us, to transform us, is the idea of the Holy Spirit of God in the book of creation was seen as this agent going across the waters and breathing life into that which was lifeless. And we also see throughout the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit was going ahead and causing things to be that actually weren't in existence at some prior point. That this is the God that creates things and creates order out of things where there's disorder. So when we pray a simple prayer like that, Holy Spirit, come fill me, really what we're simply asking is, God, would you come inside and make life where there's nothing but death and bring order with nothing but disorder and bring things to be where things don't currently exist? That's what we're asking. 
You realize how amazing of a prayer that is to God? Really what it's just asking of God to do something in us that we don't have the power to do, that we're powerless to do on our own, but God has the power to do it. So God created all things, and God created all things good. All things were rhythmic. All things were symmetrical. All things were in harmony with itself. Uh, Mankind, creation, God, all of these things were basically in cooperation, working together. Think of like a big symphony. Think of all sorts of different instruments playing together in harmony. It was absolutely full of every form of beauty you can imagine. That's the way God originally created all things. And yet, unfortunately, what had happened was after God created man, he created man specifically with a task. And man's task was to rule over this world, to be basically God's image bearer, if you would, within this creation. A lot of rabbis kind of viewed what God did with Adam and Eve basically this way, that ancient cultures and civilizations always, for the most part, if you look at any form of paganism or any form of really kind of religion or worship in the ancient world, what they would do is they would oftentimes have a temple. Most false gods would have a temple. And within those temples, they would actually put a statue. And the statue basically symbolized uh, that particular god. So for example, if you went to a temple of Zeus, inside the temple of Zeus, you'd find some form of a marble statue that would resemble Zeus. It was uh, otherwise known as an icon of Zeus or an idol of Zeus, if you would. The idea of icon actually is the Greek word that we get the English word image from. And so if you think of it this way, God created this earth, and in this earth, God placed his image bearer. So most Jews would have seen the garden as being God's temple. It was God's special temple. It it, it emanated the beauty, the greatness, the glory of this God. And in that temple, God placed an image bearer. That image bearer reflected all that God was. And but it wasn't just some sort of inanimate image bearer. It was a, it was an, it was a living image bearer, and rightly so, because God is alive. So therefore, man was alive with the image of God. And his, his job, if you would, his call, if you would, by God, was to reflect God in that garden by cultivating and creating all things, by making all things good, by using the works of his hands to somehow create and to expand this beautiful Garden of Eden all throughout the earth. And God basically said, in order to do that, you're going to need an army of people to help you out. We'll call those sons and daughters. So Adam and Eve, meet your wife, have a lot of babies. Get going and populate the earth and cultivate all things and make it amazing. And yet what happened was, in that original story, what we know is that the Bible describes in Genesis chapter 3 that a serpent came and basically beguiled, if you would, or lied to, or if you want to think of it this way, provided an alternative story to the story of God. The story of God was to Adam and Eve, obey me, follow me, live according to my ways, and you will live. Disobey me, or live according to any other narrative, and you will not live, you will die. And what happened was the serpent came, he was subtle, and he lied and he deceived Adam and Eve, basically telling them an alternative story, saying, I think God is actually withholding certain good things from you, so therefore... The reason why God's doing this is because he can't really be trusted that he has your best interests in mind. So therefore, you have a choice to make, basically. Adam and Eve would have been told by the serpent, you have a choice to make. Either you trust this God and go on living with this constant nagging pressure of what if, what if he's right, or you can trust him, take his word, 
and not absolutely be certain of living. They obviously chose the former rather than the latter, and they basically disobeyed God, and they entered into a black hole of death. They died, and that's what happened. This whole beautiful world which God created, this thing that was all in order, this thing that was just humming together, seen together in beauty, somehow became nothing more than this harmonious chaos. That was the world that ended up becoming from Adam and Eve. Now, again, this is all started by the devil. The devil lied. The devil presented an alternative narrative. I would suggest to you, this same struggle is exactly what every single one of us in this room currently are faced with. We have the choice of listening to the story, the narrative of God that says, trust me, and in me you'll have life, and you'll live, and come to me, and I will take away your burden and your uh, cares and your anxieties, and I will give you life, or don't trust me, or turn to another storyline or another narrative in which you become the center of that, and at some point we buy the latter story because in our minds we think whatever alternative narrative or story we're listening to oftentimes promises much, but in the end delivers little. In fact, delivers death. So what we see is that man, if you think of it this way, committed treason. He sinned against God. He turned against God. He, rather, rather than giving his allegiance over to God, he gave his allegiance over to himself. He trusted in the story of the devil, and then basically, which really amounted to nothing more than him trusting himself, his own instincts, his own desires, they led him astray. And it brought brokenness within this world. Now, what we see throughout history, you know, I mean, if you take Genesis chapter 3 and go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua, and you go into like Judges and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings. And if you've ever read anything about the Old Testament, you've realized that the Old Testament's filled with all sorts of horrific events and scenarios and situations, in a lot of ways, very much so mirror our current day culture. And the reason why is because the story is the same. We as human beings, by and large, for the most part, in total, I should say, have given ourselves over to something other than God who rescues redeems, and saves. And what the New Testament presents for us or tells us is that before the New Testament, I should say, there were always these these rumblings, if you would, these uh, rumors, if you would, the hope that one day God would break into this world and set all the wrongs to right. And so there were these people that kind of didn't fit into the typical system of Judaism. They were called prophets. All right, they came and they would proclaim and they would describe a scenario or a day that one day God would come and God would make that which is wrong, set it to right. God will take that which is evil and God will somehow take it upon himself. And as a result of that, he will remove it from the people and all the stain and the shame and the defilement and brokenness. He will set all those wrongs to right. And ultimately, the New Testament basically comes along and says, it's begun, right? Aslan is on the move, that God is doing something. And what God has chosen to do is that in Jesus, God has chosen to come into this world to do something about the evil, about the wickedness, to undo that which is broken, to undo that which is evil. And so one way one scholar kind of described it is that really the story of the Bible can be sort of summarized like this. Beginning of the Bible is God is king. And then the story kind of devolves, if you would, into Adam and Eve, mankind, if you would, 
man becomes king or man usurps the authority of God and basically says, no, we're going to be king. We're not confident of the way that you govern or not confident that the way that you lead is ultimately going to lead to life. So therefore, we will govern ourselves. And that led into, you know, however many thousands of years of brokenness and defilement in history. But with Jesus, God becomes king again through Christ. Jesus becomes king because literally when we say Jesus Christ, the word Christ, it's not his last name, FYI. The word Christ literally means Messiah. And that is an Old Testament idiom or metaphor that describes a king. That Jesus, when we say Jesus is Christ or Jesus Christ, really what we're saying is that Jesus is king. And with every king, every king has subjects that he governs or leads. And every king has a rule by which he governs or leads. Every king. And it's not dissimilar from Jesus. Jesus has a rule by which he governs and leads, and he has people by which he governs and leads. And these people whom he governs and leads, he calls the church. Those, the rule that he governs and leads, one of the best ways to summarize it, you can even just look at the Sermon on the Mount, is oftentimes really described as sort of the charter. That is the charter of King Jesus, right? This is how Jesus says, life under my rule will flourish. You forgive your enemies, don't hate them. You love those that use you. And we hear sometimes things like that. We're like, oh, being a Christian is awesome because it's just praying a prayer, making a decision, because one day we'll end up going to heaven. And it may not be less than that, but the reality is, is to follow Jesus means to enter into the whole life that he calls us to. And so what Paul is describing is that this new life that Jesus calls us to is a process whereby God is undoing the wickedness and the evil that has defined us as humanity. That not only has he forgiven us as individuals before him, but he's placed us within a community, this body, we call this the church, and now within this community, this body, the church, we're learning to love others. We're learning to forgive others. And it extends out to that because it's not just the church that we're called to love, it's also our neighbor, And it's not just, it doesn't end there either, because it extends beyond another concentric circle, beyond that, into another circle that we would call our enemies. So how do we treat the church, our neighbors, our enemies? And these are all parts of the new life that God basically calls or summons his people to live out. Now within that life, that new life, that area in which God is working, there is still sort of this counterattack. And the counterattack comes by way in the shape of Satan, or what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, the devil. The devil is still at work trying, attempting to undo every good thing that God is trying to do. So to bring it up to speed, to bring us back into the story of the book of Ephesians, and we'll read this in a second here, if you have any questions as to what is spiritual warfare, Why is it significant? Why is it spoken of? Is because what we have is an unseen enemy that just like at the very beginning when God created all things good that ultimately ended up into all things being broken, there was an enemy there trying to defile, trying to break down, trying to sabotage every good thing that God was up to doing. In the same way, this same devil is trying to undo every good thing that God intends to do in the life of those in this world still today. And that's why Paul writes to this church in Ephesus. He says basically things like this. God is doing great work in you. God has brought you from death to life. God is bringing Jew and Gentile alike together 
not separating them so that the Jews basically view themselves as somehow being a cut above the rest, which is what they were saying. Some of us might be like, cut above the rest. Some of you are going to get that when you drive home. How are Jews a cut above the rest? They saw themselves as being righteous. Two of you got that. They saw themselves as being better than, more righteous than the Gentile believers because of the various things that they were living according to. Circumcision, right? You're like, cut above the rest. Circumcision, right? I was just, right? They, they saw themselves as being better than the Gentiles because they followed the Torah. They ate kosher. They were circumcised. They lived according to all these standards that were laid out before them. And what Paul was saying is that, no, 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 if you continue to live down that trajectory, thinking, taking credit for, looking at your actions of a Jew, then you will continue to drive away the Gentile and you will never fulfill God's purposes. Because God's purpose is to take these Gentiles that were far off and these Jews that were self-righteous and to bring them together. That's what God's up to. You're like, I'm not sure about that. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. And it says that what God is up to in this universe is all things that are in heaven, all things that are on earth, he's bringing together. What he's saying is very similar to what Jesus said, that when you pray, your Father, who we often describe it, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That what happened at the very beginning when God created all things, this earth was in harmony with heaven. If you think of it this way, they overlapped. There was no disharmony, no disunity between the two. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was a brokenness. There was a severing. There was a distinction. That earth basically revolted against heaven, and these two now were separated. And what God is doing in Christ is bringing heaven and earth back together again under one king, one rule, one kingdom in Christ. That's what he's doing. But we have an enemy, the devil, who's constantly trying to Bring about sabotage and brokenness over this whole thing. So let me bring this home, and I'll read the passage, and we'll jump right in. If you are somebody in this life that has ever found yourself in life, well, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've found yourself in relationships that are constantly devolving or breaking down or coming apart or coming undone or unraveling, it's very likely the reasons behind this are there are influences over your life right now that are trying to undo every good thing that God's trying to do. And those influences, Paul would say, are invisible and demonic. And so the question is, is how do we undo that? How are we live our lives so that we're aware of those things, so that we don't fall prey to those things? That's why spiritual warfare becomes significant. And that's what we're going to look at. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to start by reading verse 10. And I'll read down about verse 18, and then uh, we'll jump right in. So, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And just pause for a second. That phrase, schemes of the devil, will actually come back to that. Because what we've been looking at up until this point are the fact that there is spiritual warfare. But what Paul then does is he begins to peel back another layer. and says, I want you to be aware of the schemes of the devil. The word scheme Actually, uh, we get the English word method from. So what Paul is basically saying is, I'm telling you guys this stuff ahead of time so that when it happens to you, that you will actually be aware of the methods the devil uses to bring about sabotage in your life. You guys following so far? So I want you to be aware is what Paul is saying. That you don't live in darkness. So that when you're not ignorant, when that begins to happen, that you can actually begin to be aware as to when it happens and you can 
stop it be, before it begins to wreck uh, more fully in, in ways that are in some ways irreparable. That's what Paul's saying. I want you to be aware of the schemes or the methods of the devil. Verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all the stand, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So I want to pray and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at what Paul has to say with regard to some of the methods of the devil that we can be aware of. So, God, right now, we ask for your help. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, help us to see, help us to be aware, help us to understand, help us to not be ignorant of these things. So we ask for your help right now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that we said a couple weeks ago when we began to take a look at some of the schemes or the methods of the devil is we basically said that as Paul begins to say, beware of the schemes of the devil or the methods of the devil, he then begins to talk about this thing that oftentimes has been, in a lot of ways, talked about in lots of different church circles with regard to what we would call the armor of God or the armor of uh, the Lord. And the idea behind that oftentimes has been, you know, to clothe yourself in a breastplate of righteousness and all these other types of things, and a lot of people have... Uh, and I think in a lot of ways maybe overanalyzed and spent too much time focusing on some of the, um, the elements of, you know, where is this, is it, you know, is it supposed to go my breastplate? Is it supposed to go my feet? And really, I think the, the focus is oftentimes missed. The emphasis that I think Paul is making is that there are certain elements or characteristic traits that will help if we cognizantly clothe ourselves in those things, engage with them, place them upon us, live in them, if you would, that it will, by nature, undo the various ways in which the devil is seeking to destroy or sabotage or ruin. So, for example, what we looked at um, two weeks ago when we were in this, we talked about the idea of uh, the belt of truth. Paul says to put on the belt of truth. Well, why does Paul tell us to put on the belt of truth? Well, it's likely, highly likely, in fact, I, I believe this is what Paul is actually saying, is the reason why he tells us to put on the belt of truth is because one of the chief ways in which the devil attacks us, or if you want to think of it this way, one of the number one methods the devil employs to bring about sabotage in your life is to get you to believe lies. Because if you can believe lies, if you follow lies, whether they're lies about who God is or what God's like or lies that you believe in just on a social level, Lies maybe like, I don't belong here. This is not the place for me. People are not like me. Uh, I'm different. I'm unique. You know, uh, then, then those lies that you believe will actually marginalize you and separate you from the rest of the family in which you're intended to be part of. Those lies will actually become your undoing. That's exactly what the devil wants. And so how do you undo lies? You believe truth. You believe truth. You hold on to truth. You cling to truth. You let truth be that thing that girds you, that upholds you, that strengthens you like, like a belt. Right? That's what a belt is. It holds up your pants. It, you know, it holds, up, holds up everything. So that makes sure that you are basically safeguarded in the truth. The opposite of that would be to basically be undone by way of lies. 
So that's one of the chief methods in which the devil uses or employs to bring about your sabotage. Another way in which the devil begins to do this, and we'll take a look, this will jump right in, this is, this is not review now, this, uh, is he begins to talk about uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why does he say put on the breastplate of righteousness? Because the opposite of that is one of the tactics or the methods of the devil is to get us to continue to live or to walk in a path of unrighteousness. So in other words, if righteousness undoes unrighteousness, uh, that Paul says, clothe yourself in righteousness, put on this breastplate that protects and guards and uh, safeguards you. Um, the reason why he says that is because one of the chief methods of the devil to get you, to trap you, to destroy you, to sabotage every good thing in your life is to get you to walk in a path of unrighteousness. So this kind of becomes a really important subject where we got to kind of tackle now because now we're left with the question of like, well, what in the world is righteousness and unrighteousness? Okay, glad you guys asked. So that's where I want to give you a little bit of a definition. So take a look or real quick at the little definition I have written up here. So righteousness is actually by J.I. Packer, so I figured he's a good scholar. I'll let him talk. Um, he says this, righteousness really equals doing what is just and right in a way uh, in, all, in all relationships or right standing, right behavior within a community. So pause for a moment, just kind of think about that. Righteousness really, this idea like of what the Bible describes with regard to righteousness. In the Old Testament, the way that the Hebrew word was used there was tzedak. Um, in the New Testament, um, uh, diokinesia is another word which kind of uses to describe the idea of uh, righteousness. And so the idea behind righteousness that's being conveyed is that within every community, there's sort of a set of rules. Uh, kind of a, whether, whether it's a written code or an unwritten code, in every type of relationship we have, in order for that to flourish, there's sort of a set of codes or rules by which we live according to. Does that make sense? So let me give you a couple examples of that. If you got a job, for example, and you show up at the job, um, you know, the, 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 the boss might say, okay, I need you to be there at 9 o'clock. And if in your mind you're like, I'm going to show up at 9.40. Like, like what you're actually doing is you're basically living according to your own code, your own rules, that will ultimately lead potentially to you getting fired. Now, you can't actually go to your boss and be like, well, no, I'm just living according to my own rules. Like, my code, I like my code a little bit better than your code. And the you know, boss would be like, okay, well, that's fine. Then you're fired. Like, you're, you're no longer employed here because you don't get to make up your own code, your own rules within the job. And the same thing goes for, let's say, if you know, at, uh, as you're working at that job and you're like, you know what, I think I should actually have full access to the uh, cash register, like, all the time. Like, actually, that becomes my own personal account. Like, that, that might be nice that you want that, that you wish that, that that's a desire of yours, but that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make it right. In other words, again, the word right, righteous, the word right, right actually comes from the word righteous. And think of it this way. That's why we could say, well, that's not right. If you stole 100 bucks from the cash register, that is not right. So what we're actually saying is that is not, that is action that is not consistent with the code of conduct within that work price. You guys all making sense with this? I realize some of this might be like, you know, sociology 101, but I, I, I want us to kind of grasp how this works within the broader concept of God's good creation and how we are always, as human beings, resisting this and fighting this. So this is sort of the idea, and we can even take this example and kind of begin to use it even within relationships, let's say a marriage um, within a marriage, uh, every time you go to a, a wedding, one of the chief you know, climactic moments of a wedding is 
really what we would typically call the, the pronouncement of the vows or the giving of the vows. And typically within those vows, you know, a husband would say to the wife or a future husband would say to the future wife, you know, I vow to give myself over to you till death do us part, to love you, to only have eyes for you, to only, you know, devote myself to you till death do us part. Now, if, you know, what's happening is that is a vow. That is sort of basically laying the code of conduct within that framework of that relationship for the rest of their lives. Now, is it the sum total of every code of conduct? No, because, you know, every relationship, you know, you kind of build on upon that. But that is, the, that is the founding building blocks of that relationship. So let's say, for example, a year into that relationship, uh, husband or wife basically breaks that and has eyes for somebody else and goes after somebody else and becomes sexually active with somebody else. They have actually broken that vow. And the most simplistic type of a way in which the consequence will take place within that relationship is trust will be broken. The worst consequence that would happen with that relationship is what's called, anybody? Divorce. Worst consequence would be divorce. But the reality is, is we would say that, we would see something like that and be like, well, that's just, that's, they're not acting right. That's not right. You know, that's why when we hear somebody, you know, doing something within a marriage, let's say he cheats on his spouse, we're like, that's not right. What we're really saying is that is not righteous within the context of that Framework, that social relationship. You, you, you guys getting all this? So the same thing is true as we kind of move on with the same idea, the inverse of unrighteousness. So hopefully that definition of righteousness, now that can also be uh, in the relationship with God. And so think of it this way, back onto the first definition of righteousness. The same also holds with regard to God. You know, we have rules, codes of conduct within our workplaces, within our you know, relationships, within our marriages. The same holds true with regard to God. God created all things. God runs this universe. God created. God owns it. God created you. God gave you breath. And God gave you lungs to be able to uh, process that breath. God gave you sight. God gave you everything that you have. And God basically said, there are codes of conduct in this universe that if you live according to those codes of conduct, you will thrive and you will flourish. If you break those codes of conduct, You'll die. Now, some of us are like, oh my gosh, that's a really hardcore like, consequence, death. Okay, let me, let me again go back to the marriage relationship. Code of conduct, I vow to give my life to you forever and ever and ever until death do us part. A year later, there is a bit of infidelity that begins to take place. Death has entered into that relationship. Death by way of trust. If you've ever been in a relationship where you've been betrayed, you know that Trust is one of the most difficult things to ever earn back or to give back, right? That is a death. Death happened in the form of trust or death in the form of relationship. Ultimately, that's what divorce is. Divorce is basically the death laying to rest in finality, that relationship, never to be brought back to life again. It is a death. So the idea of death should not be foreign to us. It shouldn't be shocking to us. But when God says, look, if you violate, if you break the codes of conduct that I have set forth in this universe, whereby things will flourish, relationships will thrive, if you break those, death will happen. Death between you and I. Death between others. Death between this world and what you live in. This is exactly what Paul would say later on in Wages of Sin is Death, wages of rebellion, wages of treason, wages of breaking vows, wages of disregarding God's code of conduct is, leads to death, all forms of death. 
ultimately death and separation. So the final thing is, let's take a look at the concept of unrighteousness. Let's try to put some meat to this. So the idea of unrighteousness equals not doing or undoing what is just and right within the context of relationships of that community, or destroying relationships with God and others by one's self-focused and rebellious actions. So that's what unrighteousness is. Unrighteousness basically says, okay, here's what God says. I don't want to live according to that. I will live according to my own standard and live according to my own rules and live according to my own way of understanding things. I will be my own you know, person that leads and legislates and makes the laws. And what God says is that will actually ultimately lead to doing things that are not right or not righteous or unrighteous. That's the idea. And here's the point that I want to make before I look at a couple of passages and try to nail this down and finish, is this idea is that we can look at that and have a hard time with that, but the point of the matter is, is that this is a form by which the devil seeks to try to bring destruction and sabotage upon our lives. So think of it this way. I'll just give you a simple example. Within the framework of relationships, one of the reasons why Paul will actually say in the book of Ephesians and other passages in which Paul writes, and even Jesus says, look, forgive one another. We might hear that phrase and just being like, well, that's just an inconvenient action I got to do. Forgive one another. Why do I got to forgive other people? Because God says you can only flourish in the framework of forgiveness. So we fight that. We resist that. We're like, no, I refuse to forgive. I will hold on to my vendetta. I will show vengeance. I will bring about wrathful retribution. Then what will happen is a constant perennial form of death and destruction and brokenness. Not thriving, not rightness or righteousness, but unrighteousness. And these are the forms, these are the ways in which the devil oftentimes seeks to sabotage everything that's good within your life. So here's a couple examples or verses I want to read and go through these things. We'll go through these really quickly. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, because every Bible you can open there, or I think they might be on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now I'll pause real quick and just uh, unpack something real quick. Sometimes we hear phrases like this, and we're like, oh my gosh, this is one of those sermons where you can talk about the wrath of God. I, I got to pause real quick and talk a little bit about the wrath of God. Okay, the idea of wrath is something that really rubs modern culture the wrong way. We hear stuff like that, we're like, oh my gosh, God's mad, he's angry, he's always ticked off, he's kind of like a really grumpy landlord that's looking to evict the people that occupy his house. And the reality is the concept of wrath is actually way more easier to grasp than that. Think of it this way, God is a poet, artist, creator, architect, and everything God does is good. Everything God creates is good. Now, let me put it to you in, within kind of a, a very natural type of a way. Let's say if you are artistic, or you create, or you love kind of wordsmithing and creating poems, or making songs, or music, or you're good with a brush, and you know how to actually do like nice art stuff, unlike me, I just kind of doodles. If you're really good at that, and someone comes to something that you poured your life into, let's say you spent hours designing, creating, making, putting together something that's absolutely a piece of art. It's beautiful. And someone came up to that piece of art and was started tearing it apart, being like, this is lame. And then maybe even on your like, actual painting that you spent hours painting, and they took out like, you know, spray paint and started like, graffitiing all over. Like, nah, I think it actually looked better with like, a graffiti mustache rather than how lame it looks like right now. You, at some point, would get frustrated, angry, disappointed, wrathful. 
but your wrath and anger is actually situated or rooted in your love. You love your art. Why do you love your art? Because your art reflects the artist. Does that make sense? You've given your heart, your soul, your life, your energy, your time, maybe even your money to create this thing, and it fully reflects you. When it's done, you step back at it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. This is a masterpiece. If you're really insecure, you're like, I don't think I really like it. But the point of the matter is most of us look at stuff like that we create. If you have that ability and you're amazed, you're, you're, you're thankful that you were able to create something like that. But if somebody came up and ruined it or destroyed it or tore it apart, you would rightly be frustrated. Because what they're really attacking is something that you poured your life into. The same is true with God. God created you. God created this earth. God created all things that would function and flourish together in some form of grand harmony and beauty. But what the Bible describes is that our actions have actually sought to undo this beauty that we've not added to, but really the only thing that we as human beings have added to God's good creation amounts to vandalism. Does that make sense? We vandalized God's Good creation. We've not added to it. We've not added to its beauty. We've actually taken away from its beauty and added to it ugliness, destruction, and hurt, and pain, and defilement. So if you ever kind of wondered, like, what's going on within this world? Well, the answer to that is ugliness, death, brokenness, pain, defilement. All of those are the things that come from us sabotaging God's good creation. And here's what Paul says. Again, listen to it in that context. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness or unlike godness, ungodliness and unrighteousness. There's a word. Of men who by their unrighteousness, there's a word again, they suppress the truth. So the point of the matter is, think of it this way. The best way I can describe it would be this, is that all of us as human beings have been given, if you can think of it this way, by grace, by God, an internal GPS, and that internal GPS is constantly pointing back to God, saying God did this, God designed this, God created this. And in our minds, what happens by way of influence of this culture that's constantly challenging and questioning the existence of God, and by way of our own conscience that says, I want to be king of my own life or queen of my own life. I want to rule my own kingdom, my own domain. What we're doing is we're basically taking this internal GPS and smashing it to pieces. The problem is we still have an internal GPS. The problem is that our internal GPS doesn't lead to true north. It leads all over the map. It's broken. It's constantly pointing in alternative directions. And therefore, we get lost. Leads us to brokenness. Leads us to pain. Ultimately, to death. And what Paul says is that we are actually suppressing the truth. We're taking the truth. We hear something of what God says, and yet we're pushing it down, saying, I refuse to follow that. I refuse to take that into recognition. I will live according to my own set of standards and rules and obligations and ideas. And Paul says that is actually the path of unrighteousness. That path of unrighteousness ultimately will undo anything good that God has sought to do within your life or wants to do within your life or through your life. And what Paul is saying is that is one of the ways, chief ways, by which the devil will seek to sabotage you or to attack you. That's one of his chief methods, is to get us to buy the lie to lead, be led into a path of sabotage and broken, brokenness, otherwise known as unrighteousness. So Romans chapter 1, verse 29, Paul is going to go on to say this. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossip. So he kind of gives this sort of menu, this option of lists, uh, this big list of, of actions. And what he's saying is that all this actually stems from unrighteousness. So if you can think of it this way, if righteousness is our right response to God and what God says about how the way the world is and how the way, to, how the way is that we're to live according to this world, and then therefore on a horizontal level, how we're to interact with other people, Love other people, love your enemies, uh, forgive those that you know, affect you or wound you or hurt you or offend you, uh, learn how to live within community and be generous with your time and your money and your energy. And if we're like, I don't want to be generous, I want to be stingy, I don't want to forgive, I want to hold grudges, I don't want to love, I want to hate, God says what will happen is that that life will ultimately lead to a course of actions. And what Paul says, basically, here's a list of some of those actions, evil, covetousness, malice, malice is is unlike anger, it's like malice uh, is, is like anger multiplied, like intense hatred and anger that just consumes you. He says, full of envy, always desiring, wanting, longing for something else that's not yours. And why do we murder? Well, murder basically comes because, in many cases, oftentimes, it's because somebody has something that I really want, and it leads to the ultimate, whether it be freedom or something that they own or possess. So he says it leads to these, all sorts of these other actions that actually lead to human destruction and languishing and brokenness. Romans chapter 6, verse 13, also goes on to say, Paul says this, do not present your bodies, and he's saying this to Christians. He says, do not present your bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Again, there's our word again. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life to death, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So here you see this contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness. So that's why I'm convinced that the idea, one of the chief methods by which the devil will seek to undermine every good work that God is trying to do within your life is to get you to act in a way that's unrighteous, that's inconsistent with the nature and the character of God, and therefore he's got you. Have you observed that? Have you seen that within your life? Are you aware of those areas in which the devil has tempted you or sought to try to influence your mind and then therefore influence your actions? That's what Paul is saying. We've got to be aware of those things. He says, so therefore, don't present your instruments over to unrighteousness. So think of it this way. What Paul is saying is that, look, if you've been set free by Jesus, meaning Jesus has washed you, has cleansed you, you're part of God's new creation, then now you have the ability, the power by God to give your body. And this is, you know, the word that uses their members is basically everything. Your eyes, what you look at, what you process, your feet, where you walk, your fists, how, you know, whether you make a fist and want to punch somebody in the throat or use your open hand to help somebody that's going through a tough time. Like Paul says, present your bodies not as members of unrighteousness to bring hurt and pain and shame and defilement, but use your body, your members of your body, as instruments of righteousness to help, to bring healing, to bring wholeness. This is what Paul is saying, is that this is what God's up to in this universe right now. If you're in Christ... This is the new work, the renewed work that the gospel is beginning to launch within your life as a free person to be able to do that in Christ, to do that. And then finally, Luke chapter 13, verse 27, he says this, but he will say, this is kind of a a very sobering passage, but I want you to listen to how the phrase unrighteousness is, but he will say, I tell you, I uh, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of unrighteousness. This is an ultimate 
moment in the future when basically Jesus is actually telling a parable. He says, there will come a day when all humanity will stand before this God that created us. And it says that we will, be, we will, we will give an account. Now, that's a, that's a threatening or fearful or scary type of a concept. In some ways, it's kind of like every single year when we have to give an account, like literally give an account, we call them taxes. Like you owe Caesar, you know what Caesar wants. Like, like every year, to some degree, it's like judgment day. Again, in the form of tax day, right? And the fact of the matter is, is that none of us like that because at, at some point we all realize we came up short and therefore we owe the government something. We hate living in debt to anybody or anything. And God says, basically, there's going to come a day where we will all stand before God and we will have to give an account Jesus says, those that are workers of unrighteousness, in other words, nothing has ever broken the cycle of unrighteous actions in your life, then that will set about a trajectory that will go on into eternity of endless brokenness. And the beauty is, is that Jesus says that doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be the path. That path that broken or that, that trajectory can be broken so that it can be rewritten and redone so that rather a path of ultimate brokenness as a result of unrighteousness can actually be undone. In the same way, the idea is that those that are in Christ have had that righteousness break that cycle, that Jesus has broken that cycle for us. Isaiah chapter 32 Finish with this verse. He says this in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17. He says, the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness will be quietness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habita- habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. So again, this is one of the prophets that's basically looking forward to a day when he says, there will come a point, come a day when righteousness will be what defines a new people. And it will take the place of unrighteousness that brings about destruction and brokenness that's been brought about by the influence of the devil, the evil one, that has always sought to undo everything God has sought to do. So the question that I want to finish with is, are you aware, do you see those methods of the devil at work, at play in your life? Do you identify them? See, this is not just simply about doing bad things. This is about playing into the methods of the devil to undo every good thing that God wants to do. Now, if you're a Christian, meaning you have given your life to Jesus, then in an ultimate sense, you will stand before God one day and the record that, you have, that you'll give to God will actually be picked up by Jesus. The tab will be, be, be picked up by Jesus. That's what we would call justification by faith. Justification basically is God's declaration of a future action to you right now. This is God's way of basically saying, One day in the future, I'm going to let you live off of that justification, that righteousness right now that you are right before God. You are made right before God. That record of wrong has been washed and cleansed away. You are a new person. The defilement that once used to define you is no longer gone. It's been replaced by purity. That sense of shame that once used to define you is no longer there. It doesn't define you anymore. You now have boldness because you are a child. That sense of feeling lost that maybe once used to define you has been replaced by you being brought home. That sense of always feeling afraid and full of anxiety and defined by your anxieties has been replaced by Jesus saying, I've given you my peace, my shalom, the wholeness. 
this is, this is the good news. And the way that God has done this is amazing because this is what Jesus came to do. This, when we say King Jesus, this is how great this king is. This king doesn't just make pronouncements over us and tell us what to do. This king comes and does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. This king, Jesus, comes and takes upon himself what the Bible describes our sin, our shame, our unrighteousness. What Paul would say later is that he became sin for us who are sinners. Not that Jesus sinned, but Jesus bore the consequences of our sin. Jesus, if you want to think of it this way, was treated as if he was the most unrighteous person in all the universe. So that you and I, who are really the unrighteous people in the universe, can be treated as if we're the son. The son of God. Meaning loved, accepted, cared for, tended to, honored. This is the good news. This is how God breaks that cycle of our lives, of a path of unrighteousness. This is how God undoes the pathway of wickedness that comes through the devil and undoes these things, breaks these cycles in your life, breaks the trajectory. So rather than death and destruction and ill and brokenness, that you can have a life that's been changed and transformed and given new life, wholeness, cleansing, forgiveness, washing, ultimately, freedom. This is why the gospel that God has broke into this world to undo that which evil has done is such good news. It means that we are not left on our own to somehow figure out in a world filled with evil and with a heart filled with evil how to make everything good. That God has said, I will do that for you. I will carry you, cleanse you, and wash you. We have a good God. And that's why I want to finish right now and I'm going to respond. So why don't we all stand? I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we're going to respond. We're going to sing a song. It's a song that we, we, we sing often, and I love it. It's one of those songs that just reminds us of the fact of we have a God that gives us everything we have. It gives us our very breath. I'm going to invite you to sing, to lift up your heart, to lift up your voices. If you're here this morning, and you've got areas in your heart and your life that are basically out of sync with God, they're not right with God, or in other words, you're living on a path of unrighteousness, to confess those things to God. If you are a Christian and you love Jesus and yet at the same time maybe you have been baited by the devil to walk in a path of unrighteousness, I'm going to encourage you to look to the righteousness of God that has been given to you through Jesus and trust him, look to him, ask him to wash you and cleanse you and forgive you and turn to him. This is the God that washes and cleanses us. So turn to him. We'll have some people off to the side that would love to pray for you. And just whatever types of circumstances you may be going through in your life, go have them pray for you. It's a church. We believe that God wants to heal people. God wants to restore, heal you physically, perhaps. Heal your marriage. Heal your relationships that are out of sorts, out of sync. So let's turn our hearts to him. We have communion in the back as well as a way of reminding ourselves of how the path was created by which God can bring healing to us. It was through broken body and poured out blood. And so when we partake of the communion, it reminds us that even though it's free to us, it cost Jesus everything. So I'm going to pray, and uh, let's sing. Let's respond to God, partake of communion, confess sin, give this time back to him. So God, thank you that we can respond uh, by way of love.
we confess, God, uh, our need for you. And we confess that in many ways, God, we, we played into those paths of the devil and we have lived unrighteously. Even perhaps as Christians, God, we, we still we still go down paths oftentimes that are unrighteous. And what we need is to repent and turn from those things and turn to you, who's righteous. So God, bring healing right now, we pray.